We're continuing in our short series within the series of messages that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the whole theme here is about resurrection. Now, why is Paul teaching us or emphasizing the theme of resurrection? We will discover that today. Today, we're going to read from verse 12 to verse 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. Amen. In the previous section, in verses 1 to 11, Paul had talked about the gospel which he had received through tradition. And this is the oral apostolic tradition. He has received the essence of the gospel. And the essence of the gospel, as I mentioned over and over last week, is none other than the person of Jesus Christ and the primary work of the Lord Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. But that is complemented by the resurrection power because apart from the resurrection, his death, his redemptive type of death would be refuted. So based upon this gospel of Jesus Christ, based on the crucifixion and the resurrection, we have our salvation. But also based upon this gospel, we have our transformation, which we call sanctification. In other words, everything depends on this gospel of Jesus Christ and our allegiance to this person of Jesus Christ based upon what He has done for us on the cross and how He demonstrated that the cross was genuine and has the redemptive power through His resurrection. According to Paul, this gospel was confirmed by three sources. First of all, he says, the scripture, and that is the, our Old Testament, that was the Hebrew Bible in those days. So the scripture itself confirms that the Messiah would die, 
and he would be buried, and on the third day he would rise again. So the scripture confirms the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul says, not only the scripture, there are presently living eyewitnesses. In other words, the historical event of people having actually witnessed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus or the resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus is there as evidence. Of course, the original 12 apostles minus one, Judas Iscariot, and also 500 people at one time actually saw the appearance of the Lord Jesus. And then the third evidence, and that is the personal testimonies. And he particularly points out the testimony of Peter, who betrayed the Lord three times, so he needed a sort of affirmation from the Lord after the resurrection. And James, the brother of Jesus, who denied the Lord all throughout Jesus' lifetime, but after the resurrection appearance, apparently James came to the Lord, and he became later the leader of the Jerusalem church. So James testifies to Jesus' resurrection, and then Paul himself. Now he wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't one of the five hundred. He may not have actually witnessed Jesus, and yet Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection in a very personal and private way. And so he says in Galatians that what he has received, this gospel, this revelation, was directly from the Lord. He has received a particular call from the Lord. He has received a direct revelation from the Lord. And so Paul says, even though I consider myself the least of the apostles, and he uses the term abnormally born or aborted or miscarried, he's not worthy to be considered among these witnesses. And yet, by the grace of God, I am what I am, he says. And then he says, his grace was not without effect, that his grace had a tremendous effect upon him, that his life transformed and he became so zealous for the cause of the kingdom that he was willing to do more works and make more sacrifices than anybody, and which is true. And I think that's pretty much well documented in all the um, Pauline epistles and also the book of Acts. Now, in the Christian calendar, we celebrate particularly three events. Can you mention those three events? First of all, Christmas, right? And then secondly, the Resurrection Sunday, which people call Easter. And then thirdly, the Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the resurrection event is so crucial in the minds of all Christians that it is emphasized at least once a year. But did you know that the Resurrection Sunday is being celebrated every Sunday we worship? Every Sunday, we are reminded of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ because on Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, as Christians, we must believe in the historical fact and reality of Christ's resurrection, of who He was, that He was the Son of God, that He came to live and to die for us, and that through His resurrection, that his promise became true 
that we gain victory over our death and eventually we will experience our own resurrection and then ultimately the eternal life. The, but the eternal life begins now, but it will continue and it will be fulfilled on the day Jesus comes. So what is the context here in the Corinthian church? Mentioned by Paul in chapter 15. Why is Paul talking about the resurrection so much? So much so that I am devoting five messages to this one chapter. Why is he so emphatic about this theme of resurrection? Well, apparently, in the Corinthian church, there were some who were denying the resurrection of the dead. What is the cause? What is the reason? Why were they having this kind of mindset? Well, let me give you three potential causes. Even among the Jews, you might recall in the Gospels, that this uh, particular sect of Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection of the body. So they could not possibly believe that Jesus had died and he was resurrected. They had no faith in believing that, which is very common today, too. We have many people who just can't believe that resurrection is possible. Even among some liberal Christians, they may advocate everything else about Christ, but when it comes to the resurrection, they have no faith to believe that. Another source might be the the Greek source. And you know, the Greek were heavily influenced by the philosopher named Plato. And all the philosophy that pretty much flowed out of Platonic thought. And during this time and later, especially in the 2nd and 3rd century, the Gnosticism, what they believed was in the immortality of source. And Plato believed this. He believed that our souls are immortal. So when our bodies die, our souls are released from our bodies. Actually, this kind of way of thinking undermines the body, basically saying that the body is like a tomb to the spirit, or body actually shackles the source. So the whole idea is to liberate our source from the body. So they didn't have to believe in the resurrection of the body. As a matter of fact, why would the body need to be resurrected? Since body is so inferior, body is the source of evil. That could be another source. The final source, which I think is a primary source of uh, the Corinthian church members refuting the resurrection of the dead, is perhaps they have bought into this notion of triumphalism. Many of them believe that once they have Christ, once they have the Spirit of Christ, they have gained everything already. It's this kind of kingdom here and now notion. So they are already resurrected. You don't need that kind of resurrection, separate resurrection. We have to live it up to the fullest. And today we see some, um, even among the Christians, who advocate what is known as triumphalism. And sometimes this is known as prosperity gospel. 
They believe that we are given all the privileges in the Lord that we can prosper, we can rule here, we can have the kingdom here and now. And so they believe that if you simply believe, all kinds of miracles will just automatically happen. And if they don't happen, then it's because you lack faith. You lack faith in the, the power of the Spirit of God. And Paul did point this out previously in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. In other words, Paul is saying, I didn't even know that all of these are available right now in its fullness, but you're claiming that you have it. Even us, even an apostle like me, I'm not aware of that, but you're aware of that. You're so enlightened. And he says, how I wish you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. You see, we believe in the kingdom. We believe that the kingdom is available for us today. Healing is available for us. Power and deliverance, liberty, okay? even prosperity is available for us today. But along with that, we have suffering and persecution. And we have the attacks of the enemy available for us today. So it's a mixture. You can't say that simply we have Christ and the Holy Spirit that we are automatically triumphant in every sense of the terms. That's not the real picture. And apparently some of these uh, Corinthian Christians have bought into this notion and they're saying we don't need resurrection. We have everything already. And so Paul has to go out of the way to emphasize the resurrection. And he starts off by saying, if you deny the resurrection, then there are heavy implications and he points out at least four implications of denying the resurrection. Resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the subsequent resurrection of the believers. First is this, that if we deny the truth of the resurrection, then our gospel and our faith would be found to be useless and meaningless. There's no need to talk about the gospel. There's no need to have faith in the gospel if there's no resurrection. Let's look at verse 12 to verse 14. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Let's just imagine for a moment that Christ had not resurrected. And therefore, there's no hope of resurrection for any one of us. Let's just imagine that Christ has not been resurrected. Then who was Christ? What's the most we can make out about Christ? Well, simply the story would be something like this, that He's a Palestinian Jew who lived in the first century. He traveled through the whole region of Palestine with his particular disciples. And he began to minister to a lot of people, did a lot of good things to people. He had his own struggles with the religious rulers. He got entangled in some kind of political plot. And then he died a criminal's death. But it was simply a martyr's death. 
There's nothing redemptive about his death. It's just a very heroic death. So he may be recognized as someone who is great, an amazing prophet, but he would just be a man. He would be no different from Buddha, Confucius, or Mohammed. And so, if Jesus was not really God, vindicated by the resurrection from the dead, then there would be no gospel of salvation. Because only God can save. A human being cannot save. No matter how good, no matter how righteous a human being may be, you have no power to save. And therefore, the preaching of such a gospel about such a man, no matter how great he was, no matter how prophetic he was, would be useless, Apostle Paul says. And to apply our faith in that gospel is useless and meaningful as well. Another implication of the denial of the resurrection is that then the original apostolic witnesses, including Paul's witness, would all be proven to be false. Verses 15 and 16. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. He's saying, if resurrection is not true, then we, who are, who are witnessing to this resurrection, we who are preaching the gospel based upon this resurrection, we are false witnesses. We are liars. We are deceivers. We cannot be trusted. In other words, our reputation as the servants of Christ, our integrity, would be downtrodden if resurrection did not happen. Now, of course, these uh, apostles could have been completely deluded, maybe with such a hope that such a resurrection would happen. And so they may be claiming revelation or claiming that they have received special knowledge about Christ's resurrection simply because they didn't want to declare defeat. That their Messiah, that they have followed for past three years, have actually died is buried in the tomb, and that's over with this messianic movement. Except for one case. See, that may be true with the other apostles, but you have to understand that Paul himself was outside of that group. Actually, he was the persecutor of the church. And why would Paul rise from that state and declare that Jesus had really risen from the dead unless Jesus had appeared to him in a very personal way to confirm his resurrection. So Paul is saying, well, you deny the resurrection, you deny our witness, and particularly my witness. And why would I want to witness to Jesus Christ unless something radical happened? As I say, I have witnessed the resurrected Lord. Another implication of the denial of resurrection, Paul says, is that there is then no effectivity whatsoever having 
our faith applied to this so-called truth because there will be no redemption, there will be no hope. In verse 17 and verse 18, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. There's no such thing as forgiveness of sins. There's no redemption now. You're still in your sin. And if you're still in sin, you will be penalized for your sin. You are condemned. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And so all this hope that we have about our loved ones, who we're going to meet once again, when Jesus comes, because they are resurrected and we are resurrected and we will in our resurrected and glorified form, we'll live into all eternity together. All that hope is lost. They have died and perished and we will never ever see our loved ones again. Our fellow believers ever again. This is the end. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. There's no future. And then the final implication of the denial of resurrection, I think Paul articulated so well in verse 19. He says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's such a pitiful sight. It's such a pathetic sight to see Christians who are saying, We believe in the resurrection. We believe that the cross was real. That the cross is vindicated by the power of God through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have resurrection hope one day when Jesus comes back one day. All that way of thinking is pathetic. We are all deluded. We are all deceived. You know, the great scholar C.S. Lewis once said that there are only three options regarding Christ based upon what he said, based upon what he claimed, either he was a liar and a deceiver, that he was deliberately misleading people, or secondly, he was just a lunatic. He was just deluded. He lost his mind. He was a crazy person. Or, thirdly, he was actually telling the truth. But I like to borrow this kind of way of thinking and say there's only three options regarding us Christians who believe in the resurrection, who believe in all that the gospel says, is that, firstly, some of us may be totally deceived. We have bought into this lie. We have been gullible. We have been foolish. We haven't checked out the data. We have foolishly believed in the gospel. Second, we may be delusional as well. We want things so bad. We are looking for some kind of hope. We're grabbing in the air and we're hoping that this is right. We don't have certainty, but we're hoping that this is right. We are delusional. Or thirdly, we are indeed telling the truth. And I believe Paul and the apostles and all these witnesses, so-called witnesses of the resurrection, they belong to this third category. And so are we. Because if this is not true, we are the most pitiful of all people. Can we confess this? If the resurrection is not true, then I am the most pitiful and 
pathetic person on earth for believing that, holding on to that, and making conjectures about everything else in my life based upon that is pathetic. But then the turning point in Paul's argument is found in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he starts affirming the resurrection. And through this affirmation, he's making three statements. First of all, that Christ, having been resurrected, established the precedence for our own resurrection. In verses 20 to 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Later on, in chapter 15, Paul elaborates on this, this whole concept of firstfruits or the, the seed that has been planted. And this is to basically talk about the sequence of events that will happen. You start with the first fruit. Okay? You have to have a sample of that. And then you, you see the rest of the harvest. You, you have this faith to believe that there are going to be more harvest coming. But there's more to it than that. Actually, they say that the first fruits are actually the guarantee of the harvest. You can't even draw the first fruits, then forget the harvest. But you draw the first fruits, it pretty much guarantees the harvest. And the farmers understand this principle very, very well. And what Paul is saying in this section, actually, he has been, he will address in Romans chapter 5. He talks about Adam, and through Adam's sin that we have inherited that sinful nature and the curse of that sin, but more than that, that we have entered into solidarity with Adam in sin. Because in Adam we were, so to speak. Okay? And we can say that even genetically, we are all kind of uh, sort of contracted or condensed into Adam. So in Adam, we were there, and we have sinned along with Adam. We talk about this in terms of solidarity with Adam. And so, likewise, we have solidarity with Christ. And so, what He has gained for us through His resurrection, we inherit that new nature and that new reality in Christ. So, what Jesus experienced for us, we will experience likewise. And that's why the resurrection is so important. Resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. Without His resurrection, we cannot have our own resurrection. Second thing that Paul wanted to affirm through the reality of the resurrection is that all the enemies of God, all that is of power and principality, including the realm of death, will be completely destroyed by the fact and reality of the resurrection. It's something about the resurrection makes a statement that 
all that is of the enemy of God and all that is of evil and the consequence of all of this evil leading to human death and the death of all things will be completely destroyed. So what we see here from verse 24 onward is amazing set of theological thoughts. First of all, it's about eschatology. It's about end time. Secondly, it's about cosmology. It's about the future and the destiny of the whole universe. And thirdly, it's about ontology. And that has to do with the beingness. Beingness of God and our beingness. And that relationship. It's a very heavy theology. And some theologians have spent all their lives just trying to explore this particular section in chapter 15, verses 24 to 28. Let's read this uh, verses together. From verse 24 to 27a. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. So follow along with me here. This is a, a maybe the heaviest theology lesson you will receive or throughout our study of the uh, first Corinthians. As a matter of fact, I anticipated this because chapter 15 is one of my favorite texts. And I have tried to expound this over and over in a number of occasions in my thesis writing and also even in this uh, particular book that I had written recently. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about this. And I don't know if I can do justice, but I will do my very best to theologize this section for you. Where everything began with Jesus' resurrection. But Paul may not be mentioning here, but Jesus' resurrection meant that uh, he is going to now ascend into heaven. And so his resurrection is linked to his ascension and his enthronement. And when the time comes, he will be coming back again. And with his second coming, we will be resurrected. You see, there's a full cycle here. Jesus resurrected. That guarantees our resurrection. But what has to happen between His resurrection and our resurrection? He has to go. He has to ascend. He has to be enthroned. And He has to come back again. And what happens in between that? Between then, the Holy Spirit is sent so that He would transform people's lives and bring them forth and prepare them for that day of resurrection. And then this leads to the final judgment of all that is of evil and death being destroyed. And then the final, final climax of this is everything will be consolidated in terms of the kingdom. That everything will be subjected to Christ and to God. So I want to talk about this for a moment. Here in this text, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection signifies victory over all that is of principalities and powers. He uses terms like dominion, authority, and power. And we see similar type of uh, wordings 
in Ephesians and Colossians. And the thing about Ephesians and Colossians is basically these epistles have a very high view of Christology. I mean, the eschatology or the end time and elevating of Christ to the highest and to the utmost. And in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is doing the same thing here. But these principalities that he's talking about are likely to be evil forces. Did you know that there are evil forces out there? We're not just talking about ground level demons here. We're not even talking about the witches and the, the psychics and the shamans. We're not talking about the occult level. We're talking about the realms that controls everything. Not only on earth, but all throughout the universe. There are principalities of powers given. And who are these? These are perhaps counterparts of good angels and angels of high, higher levels. Not the typical guardian angels, but angels who are in, in charge of realms. And these principalities of powers are the demonic forces that are governing and ruling all throughout the universe. So Paul talks about how when that end comes, there will be a, a victory over such principalities and powers. And more relevant to us, there will be a victory over death. And you know, death was the curse that was the result of sin. And so death will be completely destroyed. How many of you can identify with, with the fears that people have? The, the fears or the greatest anxiety that human beings have? What would you say would be some of the greatest anxieties that we have about the future? Death. Death, of course. Why, why is that such a fearful prospect? Unknown. Unknown. We don't know what happens after death. Okay? And along with that, there may be a, a sense of hopelessness, despair, especially if we can't be sure then, you know, all our loved ones and those that we have lost, where are they? We have questions like that. And when I go, where do I go if I go anywhere? And along with that, there's this whole dilemma about the pain and suffering that we experience in the present day. But you know what the greatest anxiety for human beings actually is? And so some people say this is actually a form or the state of hell. Hell is a state like that. It doesn't, we don't have to have all this fire and the grills upon which people are, you know, uh, fried alive or, you know, boiled alive or grilled. We don't need that kind of a medieval type of imagery. It could be a sense of complete isolation and vacillation, not knowing what kind of state I am. This sense of non-identity, non-existence. That whole movement called existentialism emerged because of this dilemma, this kind of phenomenon, this, this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, anxiety that we have. But Paul is saying, on that day, all that anxiety will be relieved because death will be proven to be not the ultimate end, that death does not have the final say, Death, even death, will be defeated by Christ in the end. And then finally, Paul says in verse 27b to verse 28, 
Now when he says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now do you get this picture, what what Paul is trying to draw for us? He's saying, first of all, everything in creation, human beings, the angelic beings, all that is of nature, all that is of the universe, they will all submit to Jesus Christ. And that's what we mean by the kingdom of Christ. But then, what does Christ do? He subjects everything, and then He subjects everything and even himself, to the Father. And some people have a problem and issue with that because if we truly believe in the Trinity, we believe that the Father and Son, they are equal in terms of status. Here, there seems to be some kind of subordination. What is this about? And this is what theologians call functional subordination, based upon the mission of Christ. Jesus was sent by the Father. Go, go to earth. Become a human being. Live amongst these that I want to save. Die that death on the cross. Then I will raise you up and I will hoist you up and I will send you back one day where your people will be all resurrected and they're joined with you. And along with that, the whole universe will be all integrated under your headship. And once that happens, then your mission is accomplished because now you can hand that over to me. And you can submit yourself to me. And that's why there's this statement about everything being put under Christ except for everything being submitted under Him and even Christ now subjects Himself to God. So this statement in verse 28, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. So what is the ultimate goal of God? Ultimate goal of God is to have everything subjected under Christ and that God may now penetrate into everything that he has created And he's going to subject everything under his rule. And now with this, some people have a problem. They're saying, isn't this some kind of pantheism? You know what pantheism, right? Philosophical pantheism says that basically pan means all and theos means God. So everything is God. There's a blurring of distinction between God and creation. That, you know, basically the creation just will be assimilating into Godhood, and this will become kind of like uh, this platonic notion of everything kind of being absorbed into this kind of state of oneness. That's not true. This is not pantheism. I would say this is not pantheism, but this may be some kind of panentheism. That is all in God. That's what it means, panentheism. All in God. That somehow everything is included in God, and that God penetrates into everything. But there's a distinction between God nature and the creation nature of all things. And why is this so important that God penetrates everything? 
Why is it so important that God undergirds everything? That God has to surround everything. There has to be God in every element, down to the atomic level, even the subatomic level, even at the quantum physics level, God has to be there. Why is that important? Because there's this notion that somehow God is there and He has to govern everything else but he has to put some kind of natural laws into motion and that he took his hands off. This is a philosophy known as deism, which basically came out of enlightenment period where they thought, wow, we don't really have to have the personal God involved in every little thing. And that can lead to superstition that God is behind every rock or every tree or, you know, in the, into the elements. So they wanted to excise God's presence out from the presence of the world. And so how does God govern? Where well, He allowed natural laws to be at work and He gave humans free will to operate. Only problem with this is it's going to be a complete mess if God does not get involved in every detail, every level, every element of the elements. And that's exactly what we have today. We have removed God from everything, removed God from every sector of the society. And we basically say, God, you stay there while we run our own show. Okay? And then we're going to have something to show forth. But God says, that's not the way it works. And that's why the end picture is ultimately that God has to be all in all for everything to operate in the way that we were meant to operate. And the only way that can happen is if God is there and God is in control and God is involved in everything in that personal way by His power and by His Holy Spirit. And that's why this last statement may kind of border on this notion of pantheism, but I told you, that is not Christian theology. We are absolutely against any kind of pantheism. But I believe there's some room in this particular theology called panentheism. That is, everything is somehow in God and somehow God is in everything, but clearly distinguishing between God and the things, God and the creation. So I'm not saying I am for panentheism, but I'm saying that may be the only way to explain this statement, that God is clearly distinguished from all that is of creation, but at the same time, not separated, because that will lead to deism, but somehow he is involved in that, in all of that work, undergirding that. And that's why John Calvin said that God is so meticulous about everything that happens in human life, he would not allow a single sparrow to fall into the ground. You might say, what does God care about a single sparrow falling to the ground? or single hair falling from our head. God is aware of all of it in a personal way. We want to say God is only involved in the big things and significant things out there, historic events and all the cataclysmic things that's happening. Like what is happening in Ukraine right now. Well, yes, God is interested in that. What is happening in North Korea? Yes, God is interested. Those are big topics. You know, God is in, in, interested in the a political happening right now. The President of Korea and President of the United States meeting. But what about the small things? 
What about every little detail? I'm glad that John Calvin was able to recognize that you cannot have every little thing out of order and somehow God is just only control over the big things. Everything has to be consistent, even every little detail, because all the little details add up to that conglomerate great and big things. And that's why he could only preach the sovereignty of God, that God is in complete control, absorbed in everything that is there, that God may be all in all. Amen? Amen. I have tried my very best to articulate this. I don't know whether I've done a good job, but I just want you to start thinking about this. Why, why would God want this to be the end picture? And why did Paul need to talk about this end picture, this kind of high Christology and high theology? Why did he have to do that? Because the end should determine our present. Everything that we do today, our consciousness about heading into the future has to be determined by what will ultimately happen at the end. The end should determine how we should live here in the present. And there are so many people who don't care about that. They just want to live in the present for what it is and make the best out of it and that's it. Let us drink and let us be merry and let us be happy. Go lucky type of people and then who cares what happens. And that was exactly what was happening among the Corinthian church. They wanted to rule everything, just experience everything here. They had no view about eschatology. They had no view about the great end time scenario. They had no view about God and His nature of allowing Jesus Christ to come to this earth, to live amongst us, to die for us, and to be raised from the dead. But him being raised from the dead, that's the first sign of eschatology. First sign which leads to his ascension, his exhortation, his second coming, and raising of all of us, and his final judgment, and final subjection of all things under his rule, and final surrender of all things into the hand of God, and final penetration of God into all things, that all in all, God may rule and control everything. Amen. 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 Let us pray.